Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 31. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them into the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Tony. Well, we've been unpacking the days of creation together uh, in this Genesis beginning series. When God took the raw matter, he sovereignly created out of nothing. Raw matter he made and began to form it. He didn't leave it as the lump of clay that it was, but formed it to make it into a hospitable community for you and I, a planet that we'd want to visit and stay on, 
Imagine life on Mars. Not too pleasant. This one he made for us, a place for us to live. Last week, we also talked about the fact that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, were involved in creation. Opening their eternal loving circle that they've had forever as a triune God circle of fellowship by forming this earth that was livable for you and I. And that Christ himself had to be uncreated, torn apart, so we could be brought back into that circle that's been broken by sin. We talked about that. After completing the formation, now God begins to fill. He formed, now he's going to fill the new earth with creatures of all kinds, of all kinds, from birds to fish to those on the land to us, men and women. And today we look at this uniqueness of, of male and female made in God's image. That's the theme for today. That's the phrase for today. Made in God's image, male and female. What does that mean? So grab your outline. Hopefully you have your text open in Genesis 1, whether it's in a book or a smartphone or tablet. That's okay. We just want your text open. At Bethany Church, we open God's Word because when we do, God's Word speaks. And so we do that now together as we look at days four through six of creation. Do you remember from the chart from last week before how, how creation is broke down in, in, into these beautiful corresponding days of creation? How the first three days over here are the forming of stuff, matter. And the second three days, they correspond with the filling of whatever was formed in those first three days. Take a look at it. So day one, God made light, but we don't know quite what the source was yet. Probably him, but day four, he makes the luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars we'll hear about today. Uh, day two, he separated the sky and the waters. And then, so today, day five, he's going to fill those sky and waters with what? Bird and fish. And then day three, he pushed the sea back, gave it its limits and made the land. And then, so day six, correspondingly, he makes the land animals and you and I, human beings. It's incredible. So what was without form and void, he formed the raw matter, making it even better in the end. And that is how God works. It's just a real quick early lesson in Genesis. You think it was good? Just wait. It's the same way our life. You think now? Just wait. Just wait for what's coming. So let's look today at day four to see how God governs the earth first through these finely tuned lights to produce an earth for us, a place where we can flourish, a place where we can live, a place where you and I will do well. The scope of what's covered in verses 14 through 19 is actually pretty staggering. In those few little verses, what Moses packs in, it's, it's kind of breathtaking, especially verse 16. Here it is. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Did you catch what's happening there? It's a description from earth looking out, so geocentric you might say, from earth looking outward, and God puts these two lights and expand, in the expanse. Oh, and by the way, all the stars too. It's almost like a tagline there, throwaway. I made the two luminaries and the stars. <laughs> really? That, that's it, Moses? That's all it gets? The universe, all the stars, it's just kind of thrown in there. Why does he do that? Well, while the pagans of Moses' day worshipped the sun and moon, 
and they looked for guidance to the stars. You can't see there, Moses doesn't even name them sun and moon. He just says these two great lights. He just states the fact that the one true God created those two great lights. He calls them. He named, he's the one that will name them. And all the stars he made. And the one true God, not one that's a sun or a moon, but the true God that made those two lights is going to govern the earth now through, through them, through the signs and seasons. And he orders them with these two great lights, the days we have, the nights and the seasons and the years for us. And for the Israelites, who we know this was first written to, who are going to set up a, a place, a kingdom, with all these celebrations and festivals that would be according to days and seasons and times. Do you see the absurdity of looking to creation as if it were the Creator, as some did in Moses' day? But, but this is what we do as humans. We do this. We look to the things of earth, the things that God has made to give us meaning and direction and guidance and ultimate significance that they were never intended to do, actually. This last week, about a week and a half ago, um, Union Seminary, which is in New York, a well-known, established seminary, it's been there for, uh, since the 1800s, I think, um, was started Orthodox, believing Christian Beliefs. They tweeted this out this week. I'll read it to you. It's pretty hard to see. But, uh, so this is one of their chapel services. And there we have people in the, in the congregation there and somebody on the front, a ground in front of these plants with a microphone. And here's what they tweeted. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us but whose gift we too often fail to honor. And the question was at the bottom, what do you confess to the plants in your life? Now, I share this story, and there's a little chuckle there, and it can, you know, but I share it not just for a chuckle or a laugh, but to remind us that the real message of an ultimate creator really matters. It really matters. God is not in the things he made. God is not in the plants. Moses records, he made them from outside and spoke them into existence. This is tragic, actually. It's tragic. They're stopping right here. Right here. And Paul said it in Romans 1. He, this is what we do. For although we know they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and you might even add to that plants. With just a mere word that God uttered, the entire universe was brought into place. Creation is beautiful. Creation is wonderful. The plants do sustain us in some way with their uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen and the transfer that happens there. But if those plants could talk, do you know what they would, could, would say, be saying? what are you doing? What are you doing? You see me and think I'm beautiful? Yes, look past me to the one who made me. They are speaking, actually. But if they could talk, they would tell him, what are you doing? What are the things of earth that you, are, that you look to for too much meaning? What are they? Think about that. You might not sit down in front of plants. We'll talk if you are. 
but you might not do that, but what are the things of earth that you look to for too much meaning? Keep that question in mind because we're going to come back to it. This day four, he made this, 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 this sun and moon to govern. He made the solar system and the stars, this throw-in tagline, and he finally tuned it. He finally placed it for our flourishing, for our goodness. Remember, he's creating a hospitable environment for us. Do you know the fine-tuning of the solar system is the greatest challenge to those who have a, just a natural material view of the world. Philosophical naturalism, it's called. It's the greatest challenge to that worldview, how finely tuned the world is. Do you know there's over 200 parameters that scientists have discovered that have to pretty much just be exactly as they are, and if they were off just a little bit, life wouldn't happen here. Life wouldn't flourish here. We'd cease to exist. Here's just one of them. We'll do a couple little ones. The earth, do you know it's tilted? We're not straight up and down. The earth is tilted on an axis of about 23.5 degrees. It's slanted, as you can see here, and it spins on that axis, tilted like this around the sun. If the earth was not at exactly 23.5, you know what happened? We would lose our seasons. We would lose our seasons. You know, uh, seasons are fantastic. You know how I know that? I grew up in a place that had only one season in California. It's actually pretty boring after a while. You know, you're like, oh, I could take that season. It actually is. It's pretty boring after a while. Seasons are beautiful. They bring new growth and birth and life. And then in winter, all the bugs are killed off, right? What if, imagine if we didn't have seasons. If the earth was not tilted at that angle, we would lose those. And probably scientists say life as we know it. As I was reading this week, vapors from the ocean would go to both of the poles and massive ice blocks would take over the earth. It's incredible. Here's just another one. How about if the earth were further or closer to the sun, we would freeze or burn up? Or how about if uh, we weren't shielded by Saturn or Jupiter from the asteroids that, have, that come towards earth all the time? We'd be destroyed. We're placed behind this giant planet. You ever thought about that? We're placed behind this giant Jupiter that has taken hits for us. Think about that. And the odds of over 200 finely tuned variables happening by chance, it's like some astronomical number I wasn't even going to put up there today. It's some astronomical number. So much so that look at what some famous scientists have even said. Uh, the late Stephen Hawking, who you probably have heard of, who I think vacillated between agnosticism and atheism. He said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted. And Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists today, said, biology is a study of complex things that appear to have been designed for purpose. So if everything points to a finely tuned design, we should believe that there was a designer as day four shows us. We should believe that. It takes a lot of faith, actually, too. Don't ever think we're the only ones that have faith. It takes faith to see, as a scientist, the staggering fine-tuning of the, of the universe and believe that, that there's no designer. It takes faith, too. I would even say almost a, more, a greater leap of faith if everything points to a designer. And God called it good on day four. And what happened? Day and night, they began this alternating march through time. Day and night, and day and night, and seasons and years for us to flourish. 
On day two, God separated the sky and water we know, don't we? Sky and water below. So the corresponding now, day five, Moses records the divine speech that brings these swarms of fish and birds in the air. But in our section here, when we get to day five, there's an emphasis on this great sea creature. That's where I call it this. Great sea creatures don't scare God. Why should they you? We're just having a little fun with it. There's this emphasis right in the middle of this report on day five about these great sea creatures. Listen to the verse to me. Verse 21 says, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The word here for great sea creatures or great sea monsters, however your translation has it, is probably something like whales in Moses' mind. But this word that he used in the Hebrew is a word that they would have read at that time, especially the pagans of Moses' day, as a very fearful word. Great sea creature? What? Fearful, ominous word. For those in Moses' day would have brought to mind these powers of chaos that the gods at the beginning of time had to defeat at the beginning of time. It brought to mind gods and demons that existed before time and had to be appeased and, and feared, and you never knew what they were going to do, and there was uncertainty with these gods, and you could never trust them. There was never peace for the worshiper. No peace. No certainty that these gods they believed in would not break out in this feverish wrath and just destroy us all. No hope, really. And here Moses writes, he created the great sea creatures, this God. He made what you're so afraid of. He created the great sea creatures. And not only that, they enjoyed the same blessing of God that all the other creatures received. Look at verse 22. And God blessed them, the great sea creature, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Reproduce after your own kind, he says. These great sea creatures, they're going to make more of them? <laughs> yeah. They're going to reproduce. The whales, the alligators, whatever it might have been. So the most fearsome creatures, Moses reports, are from God's good hand. Now we hear that. We go, it's a little silly, you know, afraid of whales and alligators or Leviathan, as Job called him. We don't even live in the same environment. I mean, what do you really have to fear? You might think, well, they were so superstitious back then. Uh, growing up by the beach as I did as a kid, it wasn't great to have an unhealthy fear of sharks, but I did. It wasn't great. Maybe it was being part of the generation that saw Jaws for the first time as kids. Probably had something to do with it. But it kept me from enjoying God's beautiful ocean uh, the older and more irrational my fear got. And I went in. It wasn't like totally. But I, I, I didn't always enjoy it when I was in the ocean. And you think, well, yeah, sharks, of course. But really, it wasn't the shark. It was probably more a fear of death. Or my lack of trust in a God who's ordained every second of my life and the boundaries on my life. And knowing that a shark could no more touch me than a whale swallowed Jonah unless God had allowed it. It's a greater fear. What are your own fears? What are you afraid of? 
What do you fear in this world? It doesn't have to be an animal. It could be an animal. It doesn't have to be. What are the unknowns, though, that keep you up at night or, ha- or make you spring up in bed at 3 a.m.? Have you ever had that happen? You just like, can't go back to sleep. What are those unknowns for you? Well, what reoccurring nightmare do you have? What feels to be outside of God's control for you in your life? What are your fears? Maybe it's your own body, worrying about what's happening inside all the time. Every twinge or pain, you think, this is it. Is that you? Maybe it's your kids off at college or out of the house. Maybe it's a fear of just some unknown vague fear. You just can't even put your finger on it. You just always kind of feel a little afraid. Or anxious, maybe, is a better word. God created the great sea creatures. There's some whale right now swimming down in the depths of an ocean that no human eye has ever seen that God's looking and going, I made that. I'm just glad it exists. There's things we'll never even understand. Stars we'll never know. Creatures probably, we're discovering new creatures all the time. Things we'll never probably discover this side of heaven that God just made because he wanted to make them for himself. He made the great sea creatures. There's no unknowns with God. There's no hidden monsters under your bed. No surprises to him. And think about it. The Israelites, they needed to hear this. Can you imagine wandering in the desert for 40 years with your family living in a tent? Sometimes a weekend alone camping is hard enough with your your family. Imagine doing it for 40 years. Every time you set up camp, in the middle of the night, you hear a bump or a noise or something like that. We're the kids. Who's attacking? What's happening? The temptation would be there, wouldn't it, to feel that? We need the same assurance today. God made everything. Everything. So don't fear. Your life is His. He's with you. He made it. He put it all in place. God is not scared of a monster under your bed, so you shouldn't be either. He made it all. The great sea creature in day five. Well, so he formed the land on day three, didn't he? Back to our chart. He formed the land on day three. He set the seas where they were to be and gave them boundaries and made this land. So can you imagine if he didn't? We wouldn't have lasted very long as a species, would we? Without, we're not really made, we don't do that well in water. We do okay, but we don't do that well. We need land. So he made land on the corresponding day six then after stating that he made the livestock and the animals and things that would crawl on the ground, all the land animals, we see the creation of man and woman. We see our making. And there's an obvious uniqueness here to this section as God begins to speak in this first-person plural. This doesn't happen anywhere else in all the creation account. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us, there it is, plural, make man in our, that's plural, Image, after our, plural, likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What's happening here? A divine conversation, divine dialogue, you might say, is taking place like it did with no other part of creation. Remember, we talked last week about the Trinity, how the Trinity is involved, Father, Son, and Spirit in creation. And here we get the sparks of maybe a Trinitarian thought or theology. Let us make man in our image. Now we share day six, don't we? We weren't the only thing made on day six. We share 
day six with the rest of creatures, but we're not the same. We are the crown of creation as image bearers. And this little dialogue that takes place is pointing to something unique happening here. Everything else is made. Something unique starts here. Let us, yeah, let us make man in our image, this conversation. Now, we're made from the same dust as the animals, right? We even eat similar food, and we even reproduce about the same, you know, for the most part. But we are the crowning point of creation because we're the only creature made in God's image. Not the plants, not the deer, not the whale, not the spider. This idea of the image of God begins right here in Scripture. And it's so important, it carries on throughout the entire Bible. And it's not just some cold, heady doctrine. It is the basis for so much of our life and our relationships and your relationships and your value and your worth as a person starts here. Verse 26. I mean, it's the reason you and I can walk down the streets of Canby, most uh, any part of any day, and feel relatively safe. It's the image of God. It's the image of God in humanity. Let's talk about it. This concept is so vital. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning uh, looking at four truths, pretty quickly, four truths unpacking to understand the importance of what it means to be the crown of creation made in God's image. So here's our first one. The value of image bearers. The value you and I have as image bearers. To be made in the image of God means that every person who has ever lived or is living now has this image stamped upon them, impressed upon them, given to them. This image. There are so many ways, if you think about it, aren't there, where we get our self-image from. So many ways. Countless places we get our self-image Where do you get your worth from, your value from? Places that you know can be so easily shattered. I mean, here's just a couple questions. How do you feel when you tell a joke and no one laughs? And there's crickets. How do you feel? I mean, it's embarrassing. You don't like it, do you? Nobody likes that. How do you feel when you trip in front of people as I did in a movie theater this Friday? It's great. It feels really good, doesn't it? It just takes a little prick of our ego. You know that. Our self-image to, be, to feel like we're shattered, embarrassed, undone, worthless, whatever you want to say. We all struggle with that. But God says, I put my image, my image on everyone. On everyone. It doesn't matter how low your self-image has sunk of yourself. It doesn't matter how low your image is of yourself. There is an objective reality that God has stamped upon you that says, I made you, you have value, you have beauty just because I made you. Every one of you. It doesn't matter how low you're feeling today, how worthless you might be feeling today. God says, my image is on you, you matter. I put it on you. This is an objective reality that God has stamped upon you. Every human being reflects God and has objective value. You, you've seen these signs around Canby. You've seen them in other places, other towns. I think they've spread probably all over the nation, different signs that are 
put up to help with mental illness and depression. Phrases such as this one, you matter. It's the language of purpose, isn't it? Of dignity, of value and worth. No, you matter. You. As you see that sign, you're reading it as one, reading a sign. You matter. Imagine if the sign said something like this. You are the product of random choice, or of chance, excuse me, you're the product of random chance, so give life a chance. Does that encourage you? (laughs) How about this one? You came from nothing, so be something. Does that get you going? Not really, does it? It doesn't. No, it says you matter. Just as a person, as you exist, you matter. We've got this desire to reassure human beings that they are valuable and worthwhile. But without knowing we're made in God's image, where do we get that assurance from? Where do you get that assurance from? Without this idea that God put his image in us. I mean, where do you get that from? If all we are is come from nothing or a conglomeration of cells that crawled out of some primordial ooze, you can say it all you want, you can put it on a sign, but you can't be sure that God said it. Oh, let's make them in our image. That's why you matter. Let's make them in our image. It means God says you're valuable, so you are. Sometimes you need to speak to yourself, don't you? Our self, you need to be like, self, be quiet. God says I do, I, I, I have value. I have worth. Self, shut up. We need to do that. You got to take yourself in your hand and go, no, the sign is true because God put his image on me. Or we get those voices in our head. Oh, you failed. Oh, you're nothing. No, you matter because the image is on you. That's what we got to tell ourselves. It's the ultimate reality. So if that's the case, then you do matter. You have purpose. It's got some implications for our relationships, doesn't it? Here's where I look at the interactions of the image bearers then. If we have got value, the interactions, there's some implications there. How we treat every single person that even crosses our path, you might say. Do we realize that every human being, every human being we come into contact with has been intimately designed by God and given His image? Everyone in your row today, everyone in front and behind you, back there at the sound and tech table, everyone in here has been given God's image. That strange neighbor you have. That person with the strange laugh or the annoying voice that bugs you. Your coworker who annoys you, gets on your nerves. And we all know the phrases. We, we still say them. We say them and, ah, we don't go anymore. We just don't want to be around all those people. All those people. You know, church would be great if it wasn't for all those people. Ah, it's just so crowded now. I hate crowds. I, you know, we can be so dismissive of image bearers, of people made in God's image. I think we've used this quote before, but it's so valuable. We'll probably use it a lot of times. C.S. Lewis said this in uh, The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal, meaning we'll live forever. Body dies, our soul will go on. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. They disappear. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. 
the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. What's, what's, what's he saying? What's he saying? The image of God is inhumanity. Everyone you come into contact with is going to live forever. They matter. They're, they're valued. And that image within them will either head towards God and look more like God to the point that we're, as we see each other someday, if we saw it now, we'd be tempted to worship. Or so distorted as we head away from God and his image in us that those who are ultimately away from God will be like some corrupted thing that would give us terror like a nightmare. It matters, doesn't it then? It matters how you view people, how you treat every, how I treat every person that crosses my path. But I don't always think that way. We almost should treat them as sacred. Have concern. Respect. A gentleness that there's just a common humanity in their image. And think in our mind, well, what does this person need from me right now that could help them? It might just be a smile and passing on the street. What do they need? And yet James says that's not how it is, is it? He says this, but no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are, what does he say? Made in the image of God. Made in the likeness of God. He says it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Being made in God's image, it's the basis of love your neighbor. It's the basis of how we treat each other. It's the basis of how we treat those people that keep moving down from Portland to Canby. I've heard it quite a few times as I've lived here in, in Canby these last few years. People talking about other people made in God's image. Ugh, all these people moving into our town. And I get it. I understand that, that change is hard in small towns that are in the, uh, kind of on the bubble or cusp of what's happening here. But why don't we also view it as a mission field moving into our backyard? People coming into our town, they're building new houses. Guess what? Image bearers are going to be in that house that need the gospel, that need a church, that need Bethany, that need you and I to love them and image God back to them. It's just, I'm just asking, just take a step, kind of think a little bit there. You can still kind of hold on to like, we can, you know, small town change is hard, but there's people coming. Maybe we could just flip it even just a little bit. A mission field coming into our backyard. People made in God's image who need the gospel. And yet we know, as we look at the world, do we always honor this image? No, there's violence. There's injustice. We use people. We exploit people at times, don't we? We trample on the image of God and others sometimes because that image is broken in us. That's why we don't always acknowledge it and honor it in others. So let's talk about what is that? What is it? Let's look at the reflection of the image bearers. Let's talk about what, what is it? Let's go to the next slide, I think. We have it. There it is. The reflection of the image bearers. Let's look a little more at what God means when he says, let us make man in our image. Because in doing so, we're going to see, I think, our problem and the solution in these last few minutes. When we talk about the image of God, the best way to describe it, it's that we're like a mirror. You've stood in front of a mirror. Maybe you've got one on the back of your door, a full-length mirror in your bathroom or a little circle one in your hallway or something. The best way to describe the image of God is like a mirror that is to reflect God. We're like a mirror that's to reflect God. We're to show Him, His glory, His goodness, His character, His love, His mercy to the world. 
Now, what's the thing you know about a mirror? It's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest, is anyone there to hear it? If nobody stands in front of a mirror, is there an image to reflect back? No. We know that. A a mirror cannot self-generate its own image. You have to stand in front of it, which means you and I need to face God if we're going to reflect God. We can't generate the image of God in ourselves. You've got to face God like a mirror to reflect God. Face Him. Live towards Him. Know who He is so that we can reflect His love. Reflect His character to the world. But don't we try to self-generate our own image? You do. I do. You try to self-generate your own purpose and meaning, why you're here, our own glory, our own worth by reflecting other things. We all do that. We all do that. Why? You were made to reflect something. It's kind of like you said, every, we've said every heart is made to worship something. We're wired that way. God made us. He made us in his image. Part of that image is we're made for relationship and we follow things and we always are worshiping something. We're made to reflect. And when we don't reflect God, we'll try to find that reflection that image, that identity, that ultimate significance in other things. A person, spouse, our kids, that's a tough one. A job. And when we do that, you know what ends up happening? We actually end up trampling the image of God in those things we even love so much and breaking it more in ourselves when we do that. Here's, let's get a couple examples. If you enter into marriage imaging God, your ultimate identity, your purpose, your image, your value, your worth comes from Him, you can enter marriage as a servant, serving the other. Because you know your ultimate significance can never come from another person. They weren't meant to bear that weight. So you're, you're able to be wronged without having to have such strict justice in your marriage. Sometimes you'll be okay with being wronged. You'll be able to see flaws in your spouse and not every moment have to point them out because your worth doesn't come from them. If they're what's filling your mirror, you will destroy them. It's too much of a burden for them to carry. It's like the weight of your soul. And so either you try to make them perfect and control them or you'll be so scared of disappointing them, you'll never tell them the truth when sometimes we need to tell each other the truth in marriage. And it'll crush you rather than just going out and free, like just freedom to love them in service because your ultimate worth, your mirror is pointed at it. See how practical this is? It really is. How about your kids? This is a tough one. I said earlier, first there was maybe those in your 30s and 40s, but that probably never stops. <laughs> you still have kids even as you age in your 50s and 60s. You probably still have, this is probably still a thing. If your image is in your kids, ultimately, you will crush them because your ultimate worth is based on what? Their performance, their success, their happiness. So you'll either crush them with expectations and micromanaging and drive them away or you'll want them to like you so much you'll become more of a friend than a parent. But if you're imaging God, you'll move out in service and love and authority with trust and grace and mercy Because here's your ultimate worth. It could never come from your children. 
If there's anything more important to you and I than God, that thing is doomed. Because it can't bear the weight of your soul. It was never meant to be the center of your mirror. Only God is. Nobody else could do that. God says, turn towards me. Face your mirror towards me. And when you, then when you do that, and you enter into all these relationships, you'll serve. And that actually, it's more loving because you won't be expecting from them what they can never give you. And you'll bring life to the relationship rather than uh, smoldering kind of, or claustrophobic kind of smothering death, really. So how do we fix the problem? What do we do? Because you know, I know I have things that I like to turn the mirror to and find, ah, that makes me matter. Now I've got, now I'm somebody, right? How do we fix the problem? And at the end of the day, aren't you exhausted anyways by all the things you turn your image to when they disappoint you over and over again? Let's look at it. It's the restoration of the image bearers. It's the restoration of the inner image bearers. In a couple weeks, we're going to see the image of God that's given here broken in humanity. The fall, when sin entered the world. The first sin. But now, in the meantime, God's restoring it. He's recreating it. There's our word creation. He's recreating His image in humanity in Jesus. Do you know Colossians talks about Jesus as this? He is the image. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Do you want to find what the image of God is and should be in you? Do you want to know how to see it recreated and restored in you? We look at Jesus. He is the image of God. Hebrews makes it just as clear, maybe more so. It says, in 1.3 of Hebrews, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, his, his image. And you know what Jesus said to the disciples, didn't he? He said, if you see me, you've seen who? The Father. Do you want to know what the image of God is to be for your life? Do you want to have it restored from its broken mess? Look to Jesus. He's the image of God. We've got to have the beauty of Jesus be so overwhelming to us that it replaces the beauty of those lesser things in our hearts that we turn our mirrors to for ultimate significance. Those things matter? Yes, it's people we love many times. But we've got to have the beauty of the one who images God replace all those lesser loves. It's why you and I do the wacky things we do that you'd never think you would do. Pursue bad relationships. Say hurtful things. Lie to keep a job. Snap in anger when you're disappointed by something or someone. That's why we do all those wacky things. We're like kind of like a dirty mirror, actually. <laughs> kind of fogged over. Especially as we come to earth and we're born with dust and dirt and scratched and marred. The Paul describes us as those that come to earth, we have a veil over our hearts, he says. It's covered. It's kind of, there's a cloud. There's a veil between us and that beautiful image, that one, Jesus. We can't see Jesus. Jesus who was and is the perfect of image of God. The one who treated everyone with dignity and respect 
and honor and love and yet allowed that perfect image to be trampled over for you. Do you see that? He allowed himself to be trampled. He's the perfect image of God to have that image trampled for you. Voluntarily, even. Voluntarily. Even though he's the perfect image of God on earth, you have to turn your mirror back again to him today and embrace him in faith again today and see him for the beauty that he is and take him in in faith. Because when we do, here's what Paul says about that veil. Once you come to him, once you know him, we become those with an unveiled face. And we get to behold the glory of the Lord. And then what happens is, over time, then you're transformed into the same image when you behold him, that image, from one degree to another, of glory to another, Paul says. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So how do you want, if you want to change? Do you want to have that mirror be cleaned a little more so you can see and image God more clearly and be kind of put back together and be transformed that degree from one degree to another? By the power of the Spirit, look at Jesus. Look to Him together. We turn to Him. We become like Him. That's what Paul's saying. You get your face, the veil's gone. You look at Him, you'll become like Him from one degree to one degree to one degree. Sometimes it's back a degree, isn't it? But thank God it'll be from one degree to another until someday we do look like those creatures that Lewis said that you might be tempted to bow down and worship even. We wouldn't. changes you. It fixes you. It removes the veil. And then what happens when we do that? We stop trampling as much on the image of God and others. There's the connection. We stop trampling on the image of God and others because we're becoming like the image that we're meant to, to, to display. Center on Him. More of Him. More Jesus. Turn your mirror to Him. Day six. In his image, he created them, male and female in his image. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are doing a great work, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, by the Lord who is spirit in our hearts to turn us to the great image of yourself in Jesus. So do that, Lord, now by one degree to the next, even today in real time here, take us one degree, maybe a few, closer to that image, so that we'll display your image to the world and trample on it just a bit less than those around us. Do that us as individuals. Do that in Bethany Church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.